The views expressed in these conversations are those of the presenters and may not be endorsed by their respective company or agency. Welcome to this episode of Tech Lasso. My name is Chris Song and I'm here with Scott Moss today. Hello. Hey, Scott. Today we have a very, very cool guest. We have a Mary Jo Matta coming onto the show. What do you know about her? One thing that really interests me is that when I look at uh, Mary Jo's uh, social media that we hadn't met before, we have so many EdTech friends in common and people from the Q organization and computer science and all of these uh, common areas that it's it's amazing considering uh, how both of us kind of do similar, have similar interests and do, I don't, I don't want to say similar work, but uh, it's surprising I haven't met her. But uh, MJ is in my cohort, uh, my doctoral cohort at UCLA, and her research is very, uh, I'm interested to learn more about her research, and this will be a great opportunity to do so. So I know she's an amazing speaker and uh, very focused on computer science and equity as I am. So I look forward to this conversation. That's super awesome, because when I saw Mary Jill, the thing that stood out to me the most, teacher. She was a classroom teacher in both the public and private side. She's worked in the journalism under Ed, Ed Surge. And I think the other component that's really cool is she's on, she works with Google and she's working in the education for social impact component. And so I'm really excited to hear what she has to share with us, what she can tell us about, you know, projects she's working on, her dissertation, like we can go in so many directions with this. I'm really appreciative of this. So I would like to say, hey, Mary Jo, come on on and let us know about yourself. Hi, everybody. Uh, Christopher, Scott, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this podcast. Um, I'm sort of a nerd fan. I love what this podcast represents. I love the LA County Office of Education because I grew up in the city of LA and I know how vital the work that you guys do is. So I just want to say thank you for all that you do and we'll continue. Oh, thank you. We appreciate you being on here. So I guess I I like to introduce myself as basically an educator. Just like you said, Christopher, I think that I identify as an edu- educator slash teacher at my foundation, not just because my background is in teaching. You know, my first job outside of college was in teaching, but also I've always been very interested in learning and education. Going to school was something that I always enjoyed. I love to learn, but I think I also felt, you know, a bit constrained sometimes by more of the traditional environments. And so going in and out of different spaces, I've seen a lot of the ups and downs. And then on top of that, um, both as a student and as a teacher, I've also seen sort of the, the pros and the cons of tech in the classroom. And so I've held a lot of roles that have given me the opportunity to witness the implementation of ed tech from a lot of different perspectives. You know, as an educator teaching sixth grade science in um, the public school systems in Texas to when I moved to Los Angeles and I ended up teaching for a Catholic school system and then also moving into journalism where I wrote about education technology. And then right now being in the corporate private sector and understanding how corporate organizations are attempting to support a lot of the work that is both going on and things that are hopefully going to continue to grow in popularity over the next you know, several decades. And I've seen that every environment, there's pros and cons, um, but I've also seen in every environment that there's folks that are ultimately really interested in supporting students and also 
folks that may not necessarily have students' best interests at heart. And so what I think I've kind of learned along the way is that there's a lot of shades of gray and understanding how to harness the power that, you know, each of those different groups of stakeholders can have in a positive and, you know, student-centric way is really what I hope I can continue to support for the rest of my life. And one last thing I'll say is that, you know, I think in coming in and out of a lot of different spaces, it's pretty safe to say that there are inequitable structures, um, especially when it comes to race and socioeconomic status that unfortunately uh, underscore a lot of the education systems in the United States and internationally at large. And that doesn't necessarily vary from public to private, from, you know, corporate to government institutions. It's, there's a, a bit of it everywhere. And my big hope for anybody listening to this podcast is that, you know, if that's something that they're confused about or sort of questioning, I would say it's a good opportunity to really, you know, do more research and understanding are all types of students, all genres of students really being serviced in the same ways. Education in general, just me coming from alternative ed, me working now in, with LACO, education looks so different across the spectrum. I think a lot of times there are a lot of schools out there that many people aren't aware of. Growing up, I just remember I went to a traditional comprehensive school. What that meant is I went to class five days a week, sat in a classroom, a teacher talked to me. High school, same idea. I rotated, but mm-hmm. that didn't work for like that didn't work for all my friends at the time. I remember a lot of friends dropped out. They left. They went somewhere else. They're like, this isn't it for me, education like this, I'm not learning, I'm not engaged. And I know early on in my education or my educational career, technology was being pushed out. And they're like, hey, this is going to help students learn better. This is going to help students be engaged. I didn't see that. Did you see that when you were teaching? Well, I think it depends on what sort of technology you're talking about. Technology is a very general topic, right? It can refer to a lot of different things. So, you know, my very first experiences when I was working with tech in the classroom was when I was a science teacher and the technology that I was utilizing with my students was the more traditional lab equipment. It was Bunsen burners. Uh, It was, you know, measuring tubes. It was microscopes. And those kinds of technology allowed for us to do was really to uh, implement the project-based approach to learning science instead of just we're sitting here, we're reading from a book, and then we're taking a multiple choice test at the end of every week to try to understand whether the students, quote unquote, get the information. As time went on, though, it was very, it became very clear that there was an uptick in, quote unquote, digital technologies. And when I moved to Los Angeles to teach in the Catholic school system, that was a time when LAUSD was sort of going through the ups and downs of its one-to-one iPad debacle. The school that I was at was thinking that they had to kind of keep up with that and bring one-to-one iPad technology into the classroom. And there was a lot of keeping up with the Joneses without actually understanding and thinking about how the tech itself could be used to improve upon the educating, the teaching that was already happening. So I've seen examples of where tech can do really incredible, incredible things and uh, kind of going back to the equalization, you know, the, the, the equity component I was talking about before can help bring closer some of these gaps that exist between students. But at the same time, I've also seen it widen those gaps. And so to me, tech is as many 
things are a tool that if used in the right way with an understanding of what a stakeholder really needs can be incredibly fruitful, but can also be somewhat disastrous. And quite frankly, a money and a time suck if there isn't a lot of prep and instructional coaching that goes into the use of that technology. I love the fact that you're saying it's a tool that we can use because I think of all the time, like my GPS, we've gone so like, I don't want to say we, I'm very used to using my GPS to get from point A to point B. The moment I put the address in there, it's going to take me from point A to point B. But there are times where it doesn't take me to the right spot. And that's mm-hmm. not the GPS's fault. That's my fault because I didn't enter it in right. And I feel like that's very much the same with the classroom. It's like, we get all these tools, we get all these shiny objects. How are we using it? If it's going to make the classroom life easier, if it's going to enhance student learning, use it. If it isn't, then do we really want to use it? Exactly. And I think a lot of people are asking that question right now as we're starting to see more, you know, machine learning technology in existence. I mean, anybody who's listening to this and hears that I'm from Google may be wondering, I wonder what she thinks of ChatGPT or BARD. And to be honest, I think the same thing about it that I think of most online software, which is it can be used in very fruitful ways and also potentially very disastrous ways. There was a really interesting article that um, a writer from the New York Times put out today where he basically included his stream of conversation with the chat GPT app. And what you realize as you're reading the stream is some of this is really interesting and some of it is clearly just a non sequitur. And I think to myself, you know, when we're talking to kids about tools, we have to also kind of show them how things can be used in a productive way and also a non-productive way. Um, To me, social media is a prime example of a tech slash software tool that can be incredibly, incredibly helpful, but can also be quite honestly detrimental to one's learning and frankly, mental health state. It's still a tool. It's how we use it. And if we use it in the right way, life should be easier and efficient. It's just, you know, like you're saying with social media, it's about how it's being used. It can be really good for you or really bad for you. Exactly. And there's a an additional component to that, which is also all of these tools are created by humans and humans have their own inherent biases. And so when we design those tools, those inherent biases are nat- naturally, um, unless there's a lot of, you know, thought and prep and testing that goes into it, the tools are going to reflect the biases that we have. I'll never forget, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who was using Kahoot in the classroom, and this was several years ago, so I can't speak to whether Kahoot has made an update on this or not, but he had a large number of West African students in his classroom, and when the students were putting their names into the input for where you list your name to be a player, the Kahoot software was recognizing those names as expletives or some sort of inappropriate content. And to me, what that says is not necessarily it's a problem with the tool per se, because the tool was programmed to do that. It's probably a problem with where the humans designated what an appropriate quote unquote first name is or what an appropriate signifier is. So to me, that was a very small but very impactful example of how biases can 100% play out into ed tech tools. And so as a result, that also is something to consider when we think about both the pros and the cons of using technology in the classroom. I'd like to bring a couple of these things together as far as you mentioned, uh, using technology in a positive way with students and uh, 
supporting equity. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little more about your work uh, with Code Next and, and the efforts to do those two things. I am one of the co-leads for a program that is sponsored by Google, and it's called Code Next. And it was founded in 2015 by a number of Googlers of color. And the Googlers of color came together and essentially said, there is so much being done for students in high school when it comes to athletics. You'll find that a lot of times, if you are a young student, especially for young black or brown students, that excels in football or basketball or you know any any of the major sports really that they'll they will get access to resources through these early stage athletic recruitment programs and so they thought to themselves what if this was to be a similar program implemented in computer science and so code next was basically born out of this desire to provide live physical after school programming for black, Latino, Hispanic, and native and indigenous high school students, where they could come to a place that was really built around their learning and learn everything from JavaScript and Python to 3D printing and laser cutting to podcasting and music production. And so since then, we've opened up uh, live labs in three cities. We've got one in Oakland, California, one in Detroit, Michigan, and one in New York. And then also because we had to go virtual during COVID, we were then inspired to keep the virtual version going and that's our Connect program. And for that program, we have students from over 48 states as well as the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico who are enrolled in that program and are taking uh, several classes that basically introduce them to Python, HTML and JavaScript. But I would venture to say that Code Next isn't just about hard skill development. I think that from the explanation I just gave, it could come off like that. But the big thing that I think separates Code Next apart from a lot of other programs, and I got to give all the credit to April Errol and Peter Gay Clark, who were the original founders of the program. What really sets it apart is that there's an inherent focus on soft skill development and social capital networks. So from a soft skill perspective, the students are just learning actually how to code. They're also learning how to present, how to write, how to come together and and, um, uh, code in pairs. There's a lot of skill sets that frankly, I see software engineers lacking when they come in the door. And while they're able to get the job, they have a hard time moving through the ranks and getting promoted. And part of the reason is because they may be lacking in those skills. So that's a big thing that we want to do. But then the other component is social capital. And actually, this is what I'm focusing my dissertation on these days, because of all the things that we measure in school systems, we don't really measure the value or the changes that take place in a student's network. And if you talk to any recruiter in any industry, they'll tell you that a lot of times your network and who you know really matters. So what we're looking to do is basically build upon the existing networks that they have and just continue to provide them with more and more of those resources through relationships that will help them. We're bringing in Google volunteers to mentor the students, to work with them, to teach them skills, to run workshops, because we know that the relationships they build with the Googlers, as well as the relationships they build with other coaches and their peers are the types of networks that will stick with them for a very, very, very long time moving out. So that's really the component that I think sets Code Next apart from many of the other programs that are out there. The more I'm listening to you talk and the more I'm hearing this, I have one 
main question I want to ask regarding code next. Why is coding so important? Ha! <laughs> I get this question a lot. That's a great question, Christopher. I actually, okay, before I answer that, I'm curious to hear what you think. And I'm going to take it away from, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, why is computer science important, not just coding? So for me, when I think computer science, I, I, I was telling Scott the other day, I think of just people sitting behind a computer typing. That's all I saw in college. My friends that were all computer programmers or computer science, they sat in front of a computer and they just typed throughout the whole day looking at code. From an education perspective, from a parenting perspective, when I look at coding, I'm really thinking, or computer science skills, I'm thinking critical thinking skills and, and, and analysis and analytical skills and how you can apply it. Because I know a lot of times what I've seen with the like, there's a lot of if-then statements in coding. It's like, mm -hmm. if this happens and that happens as a parent, if you get a good grade here, then I'll do this here. And so I think that's where I'm looking at. For me on my back end, it's like, it's developing critical thinking and analytical skills. But when it comes to coding, I'm like, that's great. But why is it so important? Mm. That's, I think, a very fair assessment. And frankly, I agree with you on the element of learning about computer science can be incredibly applicable in terms of those sorts of skill sets, critical thinking. I think that teaching computer science is incredibly important for helping students understand how to fail and try again, because so much about coding is learning how to debug a, debug a program. But I wanna clarify something, because I think that a lot of times people use the terms computer science and coding concurrently and sort of interchangeably, and I actually don't necessarily agree with that. I think that coding is oftentimes something that it's, it's almost like all coding is computer science, but not all computer science is coding. Because when I think of computer science, I add uh, both hardware and software development. A lot of times people think coding, they just think software development. I think of it as including a lot of sort of the maker technology that's out there, 3D printing, laser cutting, things like that. But kind of to go back to the original question, which is why is really coding, like you said, so important? To me, coding is the same reason why we learn English. We're learning about how you take these different components and assemble them to create something as a means to an end. And so when you understand how to code, you're basically understanding how to take foundational building blocks to produce an outcome. That to me is a skill set that transcends just computer science and really can be applicable in a lot of different industries. I myself am not a very skilled coder. What I would say is that I probably can do HTML pretty well, not so much JavaScript and Python. You know, my area of expertise is more front-end web development. But at the same time, the things that I've learned about coding have improved the way that I think about design, improved the way that I think about problem solving, improved the way that I think about um, identifying different options and evaluating which one's gonna be best. So for me, when you're enrolling a student in a computer science class, yes, it may be called computer science or more specifically coding, but at the end of the day, they're going to be taking away more than just the idea of, I know how to, you know, open sublime text and, you know, put in code that's going to then produce something on my Chrome browser. The other thing I'll say is, as I've listened to various speakers talk about the utility of technology in the world, 
I always go back to Dr. Michu Kaku's talk at ISTE in 2016. That's when I was still at EdSurge. And that was a really interesting talk for me to observe because for folks who don't know, he's an astrophysicist. And he got really popular because he was on TurboTax commercials for a while. But the title of his talk was The Internet Will Be Everywhere and Nowhere. And I think what he was trying to get at was the fact that technology and the Internet have become so omnipresent that our entire life is officially organized and mandated by digital technologies. I mean, there's not a single hour that goes by that I don't interact with technology in some respect. And the idea of a student not understanding some of the basic fundamentals of something like that is something that just doesn't really sit quite well with me. I mean, this is something that literally from the morning to the evening, you are interacting with the tools and the software and the hardware that is written using coding languages that is created with the knowledge of computer science. I also, the last thing I'll say is, you know, a lot of times when you read um, the future of jobs report that the World Economic Forum puts out, you know, they'll say that like coding is a key skill, coding is a key skill, coding is a key skill. And yes, I agree, coding is a key skill. But I also do think that computer science classes themselves, you can learn a lot of other skills just by way of being enrolled in those sorts of classes. Partner coding is something that I think is absolutely wonderful. And I think that like any partner coding or pair coding is a great way for kids to be able to learn how to work together, especially when you're trying to solve a common problem and just get the darn thing to work. So based on those things, I would say those are some reasons that I would argue that coding is something that people, not just kids, but people in general should have a basic knowledge of. Yeah, and I didn't. I, I completely forget about the the problem solving aspect of coding because I just remember all my friends that were coding. I've never seen so many grown adults yell at their computers saying, why is it not working? Why is it not working? And then they find out, oh, this parentheses shouldn't be here. And it's just one thing that they had to go through and adjust. And they totally disliked it. And I think the error comment you made, internet is everywhere. And at the same, it's nowhere. It's, it's really relevant because the error way I think about it as a person is like learning how to drive. You mm -hmm. get to a point where it's second nature. You don't realize that you spent many years learning how to drive efficiently, like when you turn left, turn right. And now it's like with technology, same thing. It's it's everywhere. And like we forget about how it's everywhere, even though we see it everywhere. It literally has enabled us to be able to do this podcast right now. And the fact that we're doing this podcast over Zoom is because of many, many hours that were spent doing computer science to produce the very things to enable us to make this happen. As you were saying, when people promote computer science very often, they talk about the economic benefits and there are a lot of jobs and there are a lot of skills. And you already cited many things beyond that. Um, one thing that I'll just add is that one of the things that I've noticed from my experience working with students is just the, the empowerment aspect of it, that it gives them a chance to see that anything is possible when I used to teach Scratch. And I know you're part of the Scratch team. Kids would say, can I make a project? Yes, whatever your idea is, it's possible. You may not, it may not be the one that's going on the iPhone tomorrow, but you can do it. Mary Jo, I want to ask you about, you've had a chance to be in these code next labs and work with these kids. What are some of the short-term benefits that you've seen uh, from the students who engage in these experiences? 
That's a great question because I think that a lot of times we we identify all of the long-term benefits, like you said, you know, the potential to make more money, improve one's economic standing. I'll just share a few. So I would say the first one is the feelings of self-efficacy that kids experience when they get something right. There is nothing sweeter than watching one of our Code Next students spending, you know, a little while trying to debug some sort of common coding issue and they figure it out and they're like, oh, finally got it. Like to me, that sort of response is exactly the type of short-term immediate payoff that I think coding programs like ours have. Because in that moment, that student gets an immediate validation that trying and working hard at it eventually will lead to some sort of payoff. And even if it doesn't, there's always an opportunity to go back and try it again. Now that's more kind of observational in nature. I would also say that just some of the more immediate payoffs that come from even just being in our program for a couple of weeks is just the sheer identification of, I can do this, I guess I can be a computer scientist. The things that the kids start to talk about wanting to do, even with just a few limited hours of experience is pretty remarkable. I think one of my favorite moments in our history was, it was in 2018, we do a Code Next hackathon every summer, and it, it includes students of ours as well as students from other schools. And four of our Code Next boys had 24 hours to create something that was going to address one of three issues that they were seeing in their community. One was environmental preparation, um, you know, supporting climate change. Another one was related to food safety. And then the third one was immigration. And so these boys were all interested in gaming. You know, at the start of it, I saw them kind of go into it being like, I wonder what we're going to make. I don't know. By the end of the 24 hours, they had created a game that was meant to help students learn how to defend family members against illegal ice raids while also going through the game and, you know, sort of experiencing the ins and outs of immigration policy. And this was something that was aimed at kids their age. And this was something that also came out of the fact that one of the boys had had a family member who had recently been deported. In a 24-hour period, these this group of young Latino Hispanic men went from, okay, I wonder what we're going to do for the from this project, I don't know, to creating something that was meaningful for them, that instigating an emotional response in a number of adults in the room who are now bought in and want to help them build this more, you know, even beyond what their original goal was. And it also taught the boys that there's validation in the work that they're doing. The project element of computer science, especially in the Code Next program, is something that is sort of, I think, the immediate short-term impact. And I've seen it also in the ways in which, you know, as our students are building up projects, they're then, you know, developing other projects. It's sort of almost like, you know, a, a rock rolling down a hill and gaining more moss. And then those projects end up going on their college applications. And then those college applications get them admitted into computer science programs. So even in the short term, I think that a lot of the work that they're doing, the biggest impact is on their feelings of self-efficacy, their ability to just try and fail and try and fail, and also their feelings of validation in their own experience and their abilities to become computer scientists in the future. That's, that's so and amazing. That, just that's a remarkable yeah. story. There wasn't what, a dry eye in the house, by the way. Nobody, I, I, yeah, that was. I, I that wouldn't was, expect that. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a pretty, pretty incredible day. 
that in order to create a program like that, you have to think of the audience. Who's my audience? How are they going to react to this? How are they going to navigate it? What are they going to get out of it? And that kind of perspective taking, uh, I think, is transferable to any, you know, writing and any other kind of media production. But there's something about creating a computer program where you really have to kind of step into the minds of potential uh, users of that. But I think that that's also one thing that I've noticed is that sometimes I think it's hard for people to really wrap their heads around CS because it hasn't necessarily been quantified in the same way that reading and writing have in schools. I, When I was teaching in Texas, one of the things that was really interesting about teaching middle school is that Texas has end of year state tests for um, sixth, seventh, sorry, fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth grade math and fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade English, but not for sixth and seventh grade science, only in the fifth and the eighth grade. So because of that, I was able to be a little bit more flexible with my projects and do a lot more rubric kind of competency-based assessment. And I think that oftentimes when I talk to folks around why CS isn't necessarily seen as something that we should require in schools, which some districts do, but not a lot of districts have a CS requirement for students to graduate. It's because of the measurement part of it. And I find that uh, there's an irony to that in my mind, because in my mind, I just say, okay, then create a rubric that allows you to quote unquote score the project or whatever the student is producing. But that just doesn't seem to be, I guess, as easy for folks to wrap their heads around because it's not something that is as simple to administer as a multiple choice exam. And you can do multiple choice exams around CS, but you know I'll be the first to tell you that <laughs> software engineers do not like taking multiple choice exams because they want to produce a piece of work. They don't want to be asked the question and then you know just pick from A, B, C, or D. Yeah, so that's fair, I, I don't think anyone wants to do that. Like we get a standardized <laughs> list. Like, do you really want to take this multiple choice test? When okay. you're talking about the code mastery and talking about the students, you said boys a lot. How do we get girls? involved in coding because that's a big area and I've been doing a lot of research on this. I know there aren't as many women in the field of uh, computer science as there should be. Yes, that's a very, very good point. And I I will take some examples from Code Next, but then I'm also going to take a little bit of examples from my dissertation research. Actually, you know what? Let me take examples from my dissertation research first. My goal in, with my dissertation is to quantify, to create an instrument that allows me to quantify the increase in social capital, in, in specifically social capital related to computer science within the Code Next program. However, I did want to make it a very student-informed social capital measurement instrument. So I had interviews with 20 students, and of those students, 10 of them were female. Um, uh, 10 were female, none were male, and one identified as non-binary. What was interesting was when I talked to a lot of the girls around, you know, what or who introduced you to computer science, a lot of them spoke about other women in their life and oftentimes cousins or siblings as a way to introduce them to these concepts. And there is definitely an element of mentorship and I also think just direct human female to female connection that I noticed was proliferating amongst most of the girls that I interviewed. A lot of them referenced a sister that they had who had taken a CS class and told them, I think you should try this. A lot of them talked about a friend that they had made who you know, introduced them to gaming. A lot of them talked about a cousin or a family friend. The family friend category was a really common one, which was interesting. 
So I do think that there's an element of networks that plays into getting girls in the door. One thing I think that Black Girls Code and um, Girls Who Code and other sort of, you know, girl-centric communities do really well is that they do identify the fact that some girls do prefer to learn with other girls. In terms of like specific Code Next references, I will say my observation is that when we have female coaches, the girls do gravitate really closely to the female coaches. And so from my perspective, part of getting more girls into CS is trying to encourage more females to get into CS instruction. Um, there's actually a really amazing educator out of Riverside Unified who is trying to do this um, in the Riverside Unified School District. Uh, she worked on a project for, for Code Next that I can't necessarily talk about publicly, but um, one thing I thought was really interesting was she was able to get a number of girls to join the program. And my suspicion is that just by being a female computer science teacher alone was part of the reason that encouraged these girls to come. Um, there's a lot of research that demonstrates that when you are in a room or learning from someone who represents you in likeness or you have similarities with, that there's an inherent connection to that person and you feel a sense of just immediate trust. And I do think that that plays into getting more women and girls in STEM. I do also think it comes down to oftentimes like other elements of connection. And I think that reaching girls through interests that they have is a big one. One thing I've noticed is that when we do recruitment, like when we first started recruiting for our newest lab in Detroit, we would go to high schools and we would do activities and we would basically try out different ones. We do like paper circuits activities. We do um, build your own emoji and glitch activities, things like that. And some of the girls would say to me afterwards, like, I'm really into art. It seems like that's actually something that I can kind of bring into the coding classroom because we would sort of be like, listen, if you're into drawing, great. You're going to get to create an emoji and you're going to get to code while doing it. If you're into creating like cool things that light up, awesome. We're going to do paper circuits and that's kind of Im embedded with some CS uh, specific content. And so my recommendation for my team when they go out and they recruit is let's make sure that we have several entry points based on different interests and observe what young people are are flocking to and then continue to expand on those things. So you touched base on two major points that I got out of this. It's the first one's always an interest. If we're interested in it, we'll do it. That I think that's a common human trait. If I mm -hmm. like it, I'm going to do it. If I don't like it, I'm going to avoid it. Mm -hmm. And then the other one that you're bringing up was um, I, you touched base on self-efficacy early before. My dissertation was actually built around self-efficacy itself. Nice. And so for those of you that don't know, self-efficacy was a, a term coined by Bendora, and mm -hmm. it encompasses four different components. It encompasses mastery, which means I'm doing it, I'm learning, I get it. Verbal, which is like, hey, mom or dad, you're saying, hey, you're doing a great job, keep going. So it makes me feel good, so I keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Physical, Physiological and effective state is like, how am I doing mentally and physically? And then the one you're promoting and here I hear a lot is vicarious experiences and mm -hmm. vicarious experience is I know somebody who's doing it and because I know somebody who's doing it I'm more willing to do it and I think in today's day and age this is where I feel like going back to the social media topic where social media can do really well in encouraging girls into the computer science field because if they see other females in the computer science field then they're more likely to do it it's just like uh, if I see someone graduating from high school and I know them 
I'm more likely to graduate from high school. And I think that's really popping out to me. What suggestions do you have for kind of expanding uh, computer science in schools? And I'm particularly interested in, uh, you know, the lower grades elementary school. A couple of things. One, I think that like any amazing initiative that tends to spread quietly from like a school to a district and beyond is when you have a couple of key teachers that sort of become the early adopters and they spread it to the principal and then the principal spreads it to the district. So aside from, you know, maybe a more standardized rubric for project-based work, I would say that generating, you know, the early adopter community, maybe having a couple of champions to step up and say, you know, I would like to start doing this is a key part of it, just like that teacher in Riverside Unified that I've been working with. I do think another component of it is just the technology itself. You don't need a ton to teach computer science. You can get curriculum online for free. But you do need a computer and you need an internet connection. And unfortunately, there's still a ton of school districts and schools and systems that don't have reliable internet. There's a, um, a charter school system here in California. I won't name which one. They have three things that they require when a school wants to start implementing a one-to-one -one blended learning program. They require you to have enough funding to outfit the wireless infrastructure in your school. They require you to have a, um, a process for acquiring devices, but also like upkeeping them every year, and then a professional development plan for at least five years moving. And I think that those are probably the things that I would also apply to this as well. Last but not least, you know, I think that there's a bit of a branding issue with computer science. I think that people assume that teaching CS means you have to get kids on scratch and that's it. And I actually think that there's a lot of other avenues to explore aside from Scratch that are a great way to get kids interested. I'm a really big fan of CS Unplugged activities. Have you guys heard of CS Unplugged? I yeah. Yes. Yeah. So CS Unplugged is really cool. I actually, Scott, if you want to talk a little bit about it, but basically the idea is that it's, it's instructional tools that you can use to teach kids about CS concepts without actually having them be on a computer. Um, you know, it's like cards or puzzles that are sort of like giving them the same sort of skill sets that are involved in coding, but you do that first. And I actually think that CS Unplugged activities aren't just good for students, but I actually think they're really good for teachers because I'll always get that response of teachers of like, I don't know, I don't know how to code. I don't think I'm really good at this. And I'll be like, you know what? I totally get it. Been there, done that. Start with CS Unplugged activities and work your way up. Do that first. And then once you feel comfortable with that, start doing some very basic introductory scratch components. And I think that's a lot easier than just like throwing teachers into hour of code and then assuming they're going to continue doing it right after that. But that's just my opinion. What do you think, Scott? I think you touched on a very um, important concept and almost an attitude for teachers is typically teachers are masters of their content. You know, a student asks a teacher a question that they're usually able to answer it or approach answering it. So I think for many teachers, there's a fear of, well, let's say a student is trying to, you know, do something, create a program, they ask me a question and I can't answer it. What, what do I do now? And for me, when I did this with middle school kids, I found it's like, well, you have Google, I have Google, let's see if we can figure it out. And for me, in my experience, 
I think that is the most fun you can have as a teacher mm -hmm. is working with a student and trying to solve a, an authentic problem. So I think somehow we have to address this attitude of some teachers of, you know, if I don't know it well, because I, you know, I taught in middle school, but my coding skills are about that of a, a pretty good eighth grader, you know, but I, but I still went at it and it was okay without knowing, uh, without being an expert. And I think it's that attitude that's real important. And I wonder how we can try to foster that attitude. I agree. Yep. I agree with that. And I also will add one other thing, which is it's been interesting to see how some schools have actually started replacing or not replacing, but I saw that a district, it's a district where you can either do computer science courses or foreign language courses to satisfy a language requirement. And I thought that that was really interesting. I, I have kind of mixed feelings about it because I do think it's important, especially for like students growing up in California, I do think it's really important for them to understand Spanish. However, the idea of thinking about computer science as a language requirement is really interesting to me because computer science is a, a language, it's a number of languages and they share similar syntax and structure and icons. And so that was when I saw that, I think that was the first time I'd actually seen a district purposely choose to implement this concept of coding as a language. And I thought to myself, maybe this is a way to introduce computer science into systems in a way that makes a little bit more sense. If it's thought of as a language, as opposed to a completely separate subject that isn't really related to any of the ones already going on. I think that's actually like for me, just being a parent as a former, a former like school administrator, I think that's a genius idea because now when it comes to choices, usually computer science is an elective. It's not, well, it's kind of elective or it could be a foreign language to fill your VAPA or your foreign language requirement. And it still applies for the UCs or Cal States and the state of California, the A through G requirements. So I think that's a mm. great way of doing it. And I think it's also one of those ways where if it does catch on, and hopefully it does catch on across the state, yep. what might happen is California might just adopt and say, hey, you know what, let's just make this a requirement now. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Because the, the way that I see it most right now, computer science is only really ever in, in um, requirements or content when it comes to career technical education, CTE yep. requirements. And that's fine, but I don't know if that's the only approach that would work. And the foreign language concept is something that, frankly, I'm very intrigued by. And I'd also be curious to see, of that requirement, how many students elect to take a coding class, a computer science class, versus a Spanish, French, et cetera, class. Yeah. So. And, and if they're worried, I mean, there's AP computer science as a fourth year language, they could take that test. And I think it'd be, I really would really love to see the data on that. That'd be really interesting to know. This is why data is very important. And this is actually why I, one of the things I do miss about not being a journalist anymore is a lot of data journalism has, has enabled us to be able to find those stories. And I haven't seen the data on that. I don't know if there is any, but if anybody out there has it, I'd be very curious, please send it because that's something that I'd be very, very curious to know about. When you talk about, um, computer science as a language, uh, you, you know, my research is kind of about combining, uh, 
the overlap between media literacy and computer science. And in media literacy, people write about multi-literacies, that we need to expand the traditional notion of literacy beyond reading and writing text to consider other media. And, you know, the internet was was not uh, happening like it is now. But I think uh, since, you know, if literacy is communicating the tools of our culture, then certainly this is a tool of our culture and maybe coming at it as a consumer first and saying, these are the tools that we consume and interact with, um, just like we read to learn how to write, maybe uh, that might be an angle for um, for putting it as a language or expanding uh, the notion of literacy to include computer science. I wish that we spoke about more content that students learn in school as language anyway, because language is something that everybody has in common. We all speak some sort of language. And I actually, when I when I was teaching, when I was 23, uh, the math teacher across the way, Mr. Million, who's still one of the best teachers I've ever seen, he was the sixth grade math teacher. And he would always tell the kids, math is a language. You have to speak math, its concepts, and all these different components that you can combine to get to the outcome that you want. And that really stuck with me. And I think that CS is very similar. One thing about the media literacy question that you bring up that I'm really sort of intrigued by is what the difference is between media literacy and digital literacy, because that's something that I see folks use interchangeably a lot. And I'm not I'm not really sure if those two things are the same, but I think they're intricately linked. So I'd be curious, Scott, what your thoughts are about that. Well, the way I would think of it is that digital literacy is a kind of a subset of of, uh, media literacy because there's so many different kinds of media. There's so much richness in kids' experience that I think that if we can bring their experience and their experiences in the digital world here, that there's so much a welfare for them to explore from their own world that that's a way to go because i think one of the major problems in schools if you ask much teachers are, are students feel disconnected yeah uh, because they yeah. feel that what, what they're learning is not related to their lives so if they can bring in content i think um that would go a long way and i think there's plenty there to address standards and do all the academic things and there yet again another reference to christopher's question earlier about, you know, and actually your question too, Scott, around the the short-term opportunities and how to get, you know, girls more interested. I mean, this generation is a generation of creators. Our generation was too, but not like this. The way that kids can immediately open an app, go to TikTok and create from scratch, to me, there's never been a better justification of why computer science is relevant because computer science is all about creation. And the world of media literacy to me is basically comes down to one central key figure, which is, do you want to, you know, encourage kids to become consumers? Do you want to encourage them to become creators? And we all fit into one of those two categories at some point, but the hope is that over time, the creation is ultimately what wins out over the consumption. I think some of my most inspiring moments in the Codenext labs have been to witness the things that my kids create, both within a computer and outside of it. I, I One of my students who graduated last year, who's now a freshman in, at Brown University in Providence, Gideon, he basically decided, you know, Codenext is incredible for high schoolers, but what about for middle schoolers? And so he spent the summer of our launch program, which is sort of like our, our version of a Y Combinator program at Codenext, 
creating leadership in motion where he basically took the code next model and adapted it where our high schoolers coach middle school students. And so, you know, to me, that's something that ultimately probably wouldn't have come from us. It was always sort of meant to come from a student, but he created that out of his own awareness of the need, his closeness to that age group, his fundamental understanding of like what is possible to learn within a computer science program. And to me, that was like a prime example of him learning how to be a creator and understanding the consumption, but then ultimately continuing to go down to the creation path. And that's what I hope for all of our students that they know that they can consume, but ultimately they do want to be the ones creating and making things better. I think that's the best term I've ever heard for this generation. I hope it gets coined and you get the credit for it, the creator <laughs> generation, because we have millennials, we have Gen Z, we have Gen X, we have all this, but let's turn them into a term that sounds better. Like the creator generation, I think is phenomenal. I don't think, you know, I'm sure that there have been people who have talked about the creator economy as empowering of Gen Z, but I think that they, I would kind of call them probably more than millennials, the, cre the creator yep. generation. I mean, they were born into a world where they had these materials. When we were born, when I was born, I, I still remember typing on a typewriter, which is crazy to think about it, but yeah. they were born and they immediately had access to yeah. these tools. And that's why I've, I've, I've told Scott, same thing. It's like, we, I think you and I were born at the the middle where we had to learn analog and digital. Yep. And so we, we became comfortable learning both. And that's yep. why when someone shows like a rotary phone, we're like, we know what a rotary phone is. Whereas yep. you show a, a kid now, they're like, no idea what that is. Yep. I was just saying, I still cherish my stone tablets that I have from second grade. So. <laughs> No, but I do, I, there is, well, before we leave this topic, I do think that what you guys are bringing up is actually something that really resonates with me because I had a conversation with a mentor of mine at Google today who has been a software engineer for many, many, many years and is very involved in our machine learning and artificial intelligence work at Google. And I think one thing I've you know, been asking myself a lot is how do we make sure that we prepare our students appropriately for the continued emergence of machine learning technology. And I think what was really interesting was when I was talking with him, you know, he did express concerns over a lot of kids are getting interested in computer science from the flashy stuff, from gaming, from web design. But then how do you also get them interested in a lot of like the back end production and like the foundational stuff? And I do want to mention that, you know, maybe they're not necessarily learning about rotary phones, but I do wish that more students got the opportunity to take apart a computer and reassemble the pieces together. Because that kind of stuff is still, in my opinion, very important. You know, I, I wonder sometimes if there's going to be a day in which we don't actually need to necessarily go into the syntax of coding anymore. We may just be able to literally do block-based coding. I mean, a friend of mine is designing a tool right now in, in in Bubble, Bubble.io, which is basically a way to build a web app without code. And he has a very cursory knowledge of coding and he's able to build a site. But is that necessarily the best way we wanna introduce kids to computer science? I think we need to give them an awareness that those tools exist. But I was an art major in college and I would not have been able to learn how to do abstract work without at first learning the basics of light, shadow, and shading. And I think the same thing is true for computer science. So, you know, 
digital versus analog, we still at the very least got to teach kids the, the, the computer fundamentals, like the fundamentals of computer architecture. Because if we lose that, we're losing, I think, some pretty important history and, and just tactical knowledge. Kind of shifting gears, I have, for me personally, this is my last question I have with you, is especially in this day and age, this climate with all the school boards, uh, politics and all that. You recently hosted you know, a discussion with uh, Cornell West and with Robert George, both on the opposite end of the political spectrum, ultra liberal in Cornell West, uh, yep. ultra conservative in Robert George. Yep. How important is it nowadays for us to actually start having discourse with each other and talking with each other versus not? I mean, if you go by what they say in the example that they set, it's incredibly important. I mean, I, I vital. It's 100% vital. I think that it, it's hard for me to imagine, and maybe people do out there, but it's hard for me to imagine a world in which we can't have civil discourse because it's just so fundamental to progress. And I should also mention, there's a big difference between unproductive and productive civil discourse. And so, you know, there was a big theme that came up during the the talk that I hosted with Dr. Cornell West and Dr. Robert George at ISSI this past summer, where it really got down to understanding that we're all human beings at the end and we all are fallible and none of us are perfect, which kind of gets back to the whole idea of being comfortable with failure that we really try to embody in the code next labs. But if you, whether you had, you know, different sentiments about mask wearing or how we should teach history or whether computer science should be, you know, a fundamental course taught in schools, the, the reality is, is like, we're all in the world together. We have to have dialogue about it or else we're never going to make any progress because we're just constantly going to be, you know, pulling back and forth. And also, you know, coming to maybe not necessarily consensus, but at least recognition of the other's opinion is just rooted in basic human respect, which I think is something that everybody deserves. Everybody deserves like basic human respect. In my experience, having, when I was a journalist, I found that it was a lot easier to offer a contrarian point of view than to work with people to find consensus and ultimately arrive at a solution. But since then, what I've realized is that honestly, lazier to have a contrarian opinion and the solution oriented thinking is the thing that you really need to focus on. Because honestly, that's what's going to move us forward. And there were days in which, you know, I would get involved in like Twitter dialogues back and forth. But I think what I've realized is that there's nothing that can replace an in-person live interaction like the one we're having now. And that's something that both Robert George and... Cornell West agreed with. They were basically saying that the internet discourse is doesn't replace the live discourse. And frankly, the internet at the end of the day is just a tool with living, breathing humans behind it. And it's always going to be subordinate. I think I'll quote Robert, or no, not Robert George, it was Cornell West who said basically any form of technology is always going to be subordinate to the quality of the person who's using it. And that's what we have to remind ourselves. It is possible to have a high quality conversation on the internet, but if you're not able to, then that means that it may be time to figure out different ways to do it. Thank you so much, Mary. It's a great quote. Yeah.
Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate you coming on with us today. Appreciate you taking the time to talk to Scott and myself and sharing your, you know, sharing just your knowledge with us. And we look forward to having you on maybe in the future again sometime. I really appreciate it. And I, I, I have to say that at the end of the day, I still think that the work that you both do and the work that teachers do is literally the hardest and most important work on the planet. So just know that everything you guys are doing is moving everything forward. And for that, I'm very grateful. The Tech Lasso podcast is produced by the ITO coordinator team. We are part of the technology learning and support services department at the Los Angeles County Office of Education. This work is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. And use our response form to be considered for inclusion in future episodes. Let us know what you're thinking. Also, share your thoughts via Twitter at LACO underscore ITO and on Facebook at LACO ITO. Follow us on LinkedIn at LACO ITO. Thank you.